They found out I was teaching. All right, guys, uh, come on over and grab a seat. We're, we're moving into the color realm. I put color into the, the PowerPoint, so I'm, it's like in The Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to color. So we're going um, to uh, talk about a literary approach to the Bible today, and I wonder uh, just briefly how you think about that. Um, what's the, is, there a, is there a way that that topic, just as a topic, strikes you? I'm not, you know, don't necessarily need anything here. But just trying to trying to get the skids greased. So the Bible, yeah. Okay, yeah. So there, it, the right can have a a literary Bible. So it's the Bible, but it's literary comments. Yeah. Okay. There's nothing wrong with having a few Bibles. Yeah. Yeah. So just to, to give us an overview of the things we've done so far, uh, anybody want to venture a guess other than Preston on some of the topics that we've had? It's hard. It's a couple weeks, right? So we <laughs> – thank you. Covenants was, was last time. Yes, excellent. Um, so – that this major um, category, principle, idea that, that helps to understand so much of the scripture is this idea of covenants unfolding. Um, before that, we looked at the Holy Spirit's role in interpretation and even the church's role in interpretation as, a, as keys to, um, to getting to what we mean by scripture. And something that was said in the midst of one of those um, is actually going to be a major focus of what we're doing today. Um, it was even alluded to in this sermon. So if I was to say to you, what is inspired? Is it the biblical author? Is it the reader? Is it the text? All right, good. Text, good. You got it. Uh, now let's see what, what does that mean, and are you, uh, do you buy into it enough to be able to read the Bible that way, particularly. Um, so let me, uh, let me open in prayer. Father, we do thank you for uh, the way you guide us and bless us. Uh, thank you for your word, um, that it's truth to us. And I pray that as we um, think about it now and think about how we approach it, um, that you'll give us a humility. Um, we know that we need to be mastered by it, that we cannot master it. Um, but help us to come to it repeatedly, humbly, knowing that um, you promise it to be for us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so let's dive in. Um, I want to start the time with, uh, oh, this was working a second ago. You, what did I do? Um, I want to start each time with a, a question to open us up and to get us, uh, get us thinking. So, uh, for instance, why do multiple accounts of the same event that are in the, in the Bible, given from different 
perspectives, why do they often seem so different? And I, probably the easiest example of this is the gospel, the four gospels, but we even see it in the historical accounts when we think about um, First Samuel and, and, um, and Chronicles. The, the first, second Samuel and Kings narrative tell one perspective of the story where Chronicles tells the other. If you look at 1 Samuel and you read it, David's sins are so prominent. And in fact, oftentimes, if you're reading the narrative, it seems as though he is to blame um, for some of the problems that come about uh, with the exile and the punishment that happens generations later. So much so that in 2 Samuel 12, uh, it will say, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. This is the house of David. Because you have despised me and have taken uh, the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. But then he took, turned to the book of Chronicles, and David just seems blameless. There's hardly a mention of David's sins in that. So here's, here's the question which history is to be believed? What do we do with the differences? Do we choose one and ignore the other? Do we try a harmony of them, harmonize both of them? Do we only affirm what they have in common and disregard where they're different? Or do we use all this evidence that we get from this to try to reconstruct a full picture? What should we do? There you go, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I mean, they're also their own personalities, logic, and how they thought, but and how God led them through their knowledge and experience. So, um, how to share it. Yeah, right. Good. So, I think you're hinting at the none of the above option. Um, which, is, uh, which is what teachers like to do to help you get frustrated at them. Um, but I think there's a lot of temptation to say, okay, well, maybe I'll just focus in on one way the story is told. Or maybe I'll try to get a composite of this or a harmony of this. Um, sometimes that can be good in a sense where uh, I remember reading as a college student, reading through a chronological Bible, and this harmonized everything. And for the first time, I got to get a sense historically of what was happening throughout the redemptive history. But what's the downside to doing something like that? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Part of scripture's purpose is not simply to tell chronological history. And what what can what else can be a problem if you go about doing this? Um I don't want to get all into the controversies of Jesus' temple cleansing. But when did it happen? Did it happen right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? As it says in the Gospel of John, it's there in uh, which is that, chapter 2. Or does it happen at the very end as he already enters, enters Jerusalem? Or did it happen twice if you harmonize them both? What's the, what's the danger in either a harmony or trying to get 
under it. How would you miss the point? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. All right. Were you going to say? Yeah. You'll miss something. You're missing something because the authors very intentionally put the order the way it did. They're telling the story very importantly the way it is. To try to get to the so-called real history behind it is often going to be very misleading. In fact, you'll start to miss the author's point. Um, all right, it worked. Uh, so we are going to look at a literary approach. Um, there are many ways you can approach the Bible that are legitimate. You could take a systematic approach, and that's sort of getting doctrines and pastoral issues and interests all together, saying let's take Scripture as a whole and think of categories and issues and topics. You could take a historical analysis, and that would look at what we looked at last time, which is covenants, and say uh, how does that progress through the, the history of redemption, and where in the, this period are we? Or you could take a literary approach, and that is going to look at actual, uh, actually look at the form and the content of what's being stated. Um, some will take the topic literary approach and think I'm saying that the Bible is simply literature. Has anybody ever, there, there's a class at Yale that, that's called the Bible as literature. And I know some people have had classes like that. And what usually is implied in the topic, the Bible as literature? If you could be a little cynical. Yeah. What's that? Okay. Wisdom writings is in that it's just kind of a, a compilation of people that are wise saying some, some important things. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. So if you're getting your cynical hat on, which sometimes is, is pretty accurate with some of these classes. Bible as literature is, guys, let's not take this seriously. <laughs> I mean, this stuff really didn't happen. I mean, this, this, is, this is literature. Okay, so is it important, from all we just said about taking the Bible as literature and how important it is not to get under it, does it matter that this was really history? Okay, thank you. Yes, of course it does matter. Those two don't have to be either or. We do want to say Jesus was a real person who really rose from the dead. But we also want to take very careful how Scripture presents that. The, um, do we really care what the historical Jesus was like? Well, yeah, we, we care that he existed. We care that uh, who he was. But there have been dozens of attempts, probably hundreds of attempts, to reconstruct that Jesus. And you know what often happens when you reconstruct Jesus, when you try to find the historical Jesus? What do you usually get? Okay. Yeah, well, oftentimes you're, you're sort of tearing apart what has been revealed. But you're trying to get some access to something that you don't have. Yes, it's important to know there's a history behind it, but there's a way that we need to see that history that's been divinely appointed. 
God designed these texts so we know it in that way, which means we're not free to know that history in a way that's truthful. Now, we can still learn things about it, but in a way that's truthful and authoritative in our lives aside from the way Scripture talks to, to us about it. If I came and told you about the events of my day um, yesterday, say, um, I might emphasize as the very first thing, you know, the, uh, this big project I was working on. And it might seem as I tell the story that that's the very first thing that happened. Um, and then you might be confused as I explain that I had lunch and all these other... But the, the point of me telling the story that way is to add emphasis and to highlight something that's important. And if you were to understand, if I just gave you the details of after waking up, I you know, took a shower, brushed my teeth, all those other things, you're never going to get the emphasis, what's on my heart, as I'm trying to share it to you. God is doing the same thing as he gives these narratives. We need to have his perspective on them. Um, literature does not mean fiction. C.S. Lewis says, those who talk of reading the Bible as literature sometimes mean, I think, reading it without attending to the main thing it's about. But there is a saner sense in which the Bible, since it is, after all, literature, cannot properly be read except as literature and the different parts of it as the different stories of literature as they are. So Lewis is pointing out the importance of this type of uh, approach to it. Tremper Longman says, a literary approach to the study of scripture does not imply, as some might think, a belief that the Bible as a whole is story, not history, or that it speaks of another world, not the real world in space and time. When we say the Bible is literature and you need to treat it as literature, we can presuppose that there is a reality to it. It's not into entering into make-believe. Um, so that's a, that's a crucial point. Um, the, it really implies that we need to start redeeming the human author. Um, by elevating God's point at, uh, over the author's point, we tend to, to miss the point. So sometimes we'd say, well, God's point is somehow different. We need to get into God's point. And the, the author is just helping us get there. And I want look to at, look at three approaches that, um, that are often taken to this. First, we could see it as a mystical book. We might think that if every word really is true, if inspiration really does rest in the words themselves, that if every word is true and from God, then there might be some patterns or hidden messages in the words that are not obvious to the casual reader. Our job then is to uncover this hidden meaning. And this is where you'll find many allegorical approaches to the Bible. What's wrong with this approach? Or is it wrong? All right, so the, dis the key of deciphering rests in you. Rico? Okay. Well, you could then say, all right, I'm just going to wait until the Holy Spirit reveals this to me. Um, but, 
Or you could say, wow, I'm really in the spirit now. I'm spotting all these interesting observations. I'm, I know what you're saying. I, th- I agree with you. I'm playing a little devil's advocate, so allow me to just uh, to play, play a little bit there. Thank you. Um, no, I, I, I do want us to start thinking about that because sometimes we can so spiritualize the text in a way to say these words, I'm seeing all sorts of interesting things here. What's wrong with that? Why, why would that not be a faithful way to read it? We're saying the text is inspired. Why? Okay, so context. Okay. Cynical, you might say that, but maybe it's the spirit, right? Okay, your your point now. Excellent reasons why it's dangerous. Yeah. 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 Boy, that's real. It's really scary to say. In order to get God's word, you have to be clever enough to solve this puzzle. In order to get what God has for you. You got to figure out and piece together. There's uh, these years, decades ago, maybe now, called the, a book called, out called the Bible Code, and if you knew the secret numbers, you could figure out God's hidden message for you. Guys, God wants to communicate with you clearly. Context means that He's actually given these words through a particular way that the story is being told, and if we listen to what the story is being said, or the or the word itself, wh- whatever type of literature it is we will get the meaning. So mystical book, a good that it takes that the scripture is inspired, but bad in that it sees that there's a hidden meaning somewhere within the words. Mystical encounter. We can also treat the text as if it was specifically given to us in mind, with, with us in mind. And while we can learn about God and his purposes for us from scripture, be careful not to read our lives into it. We need to start discerning the original audience and the redemptive historical context as important middle steps in order to apply this. Okay, so what does it mean to have a mystical encounter with the book of Judges? Stay away from me if you do. (laughs) I'm going to be scared. I mean, if, you, if you're not taking it through redemptive historical context, you're going to have all sorts of abuse in understanding it. If you don't read the Psalms in light of Christ, you're going to have a very skewed understanding of where you stand um, and as well as, as everyone else. Um, discerning the original audience and what's going on in the context of what, what those words are. Chronicles is written in a very different place than, than, um, than first, Samuel and first and Second Samuel. So not discerning that, you'll miss the author's, um, the author's intention here. Mystic- so we could also see it as mystical history. Beware of searching behind the text for the real message. Because we believe the Bible records real events that happened in time and space, we view the Bible only as one means to access those events 
and the events themselves are of real interest. So that I think um, uh, I want to say that that's a dangerous thing. Why is that a dangerous thing? I know we, we talked on the, touched on a little bit. Why is it dangerous to get to the events themselves? Is it, is it better to have um, the Book of Acts, or would it have better to, if we recovered a VHS tape of the uh, apostles at work? I think they were using VHS back then. <laughs> maybe, maybe Super 8, yes. <laughs> what, which would be better? If, it, if the temple just had the security camera on there so we could see what was going on in the temple, or whether we had this book? What, what would you rather have? What's that? Okay, the book. Why? Why, do you, why would you rather have the book? Too many hours of tape to go through. Whittle it down, please. Give me a massive... The book is always better than the movie. Good, yeah, all right. I mean, one, you could say, that security camera always has a certain point of view, Right? Uh, we learn now from reality TV that not everything there is really reality. Everything's guided. Everything has an interpretation. But even leaving it to ourselves to look at these events, we are going to be blind to the things that God has for us and how he wants us to understand it. It is far better for us to have his interpretation. We waste a lot of energy trying to figure out what's behind the text, what's under the text. What did Jesus really mean there? What was really going on in this scenario? In that way, if you go with that approach to find the events behind the text, Scripture is just going to get in your way. Oh, I wish it said this. Oh, I wish it told us this. Oh, man, you know, get this, all this. Oh, there's a, look, here's another genealogy. Let's cruise past this. Here's another description of the temple. Let's avoid that. Let's get to the thing, I, the event here. And why did it just fly by that and then enter into a big song? Why couldn't it just stay in that event so I can tell really what happened? Doing all that, that motive, I think we like that motive, but we miss the, the careful describing of it that God has for us in this literary approach. Um, any questions about this? I want us to think about if we pay attention to the Bible as literature, the literary approach, all of a sudden things are going to stand out to us that if we were just reading it as history, we would uh, ignore or say, okay, enough with this. Let's get on to what really happened. Think about the book of Jonah. Verse 3 says Jonah went down to Joppa. Verse 5 he went down into the inner part of the ship, and then he laid down. And then, Gina, and then Jonah, as he gets tossed out of the ship, gets hurled down into the sea. And the theme continues in verse 2 and 3 as he's, he's giving a prayer here that he says he's cast down into the deep and that he's sinking to the roots of the mountain. What is the picture? It's not just some wild event that happened on, to Jonah when he was on spring break. What, was, what is this trying to depict? Okay, yeah, if you know the context, he's, he's going in the exact opposite direction, and especially if you kind of know geography, he's supposed to be, it's likely he's supposed to be heading east. He goes farthest west you could go. 
but think about in, in how the Bible thinks about the earth and the sky, or even we think about death and, and the grave. He's going down. He's dying. He's running away from God, but it's also his own burial. You also miss the humor. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to the fish, and when it got him, it vomited him up. I mean, so, like, it seems it, just the, the surprise of what happens here. He go, it goes up after he's, he's vomited onto the shore then. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. I'm just, I'm just kind of showing you that when we ignore and just look at the, the bare facts of it, we miss the, the rich um, intentionality of how a story is told that implied in this getting meaning. Um, so trying to get to the book, looking for mystical history causes us to ignore the author's point. Um, think about Genesis, right? I can't tell how many of times I've heard Genesis read as a desire to get behind the text. You want to say, God, tell me exactly what happened. But then we read the, the text and we're like, God, give me more. This is horrible. You just give me these six days and things don't make sense. Why is there light? Why is there day and night and day one, but the sun and the moon don't show up until day four? Could it be that God has other purposes than trying to get to the history behind the text? Again, caveat, God is still creator. He still did this stuff. But it's starting to say, maybe I should read things in a different light. You look at this now, and what do you see? Well, you very clearly start to see parallels between day one and day four and day two and day five and day three and day six. And say, oh, maybe there's some intentionality. Maybe he's trying to say something here beyond telling me the origins of creation. I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here. I'm just telling you to look at the text. It's so funny because oftentimes uh, a, an approach that is not looking at actual history and battling out creation versus evolution, all these other science debates, which I'd, I don't want to talk about right now, but oftentimes getting, in, getting into what the Bible says gets, gets looked at as the unfaithful approach. And it's, if I was really faithful, I'd get into what the history says. I'm trying to tell you here, let's go to the Bible. The Bible's what's inspired. Questions? The Bible's what's inspired. We need to listen to the Bible. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, we were studying the book of Acts in um, Grab Pro, and... Um, this question comes up, you know, Matt, uh, this was not in the group, it was a little, little bit afterwards, but Matthias, hey, is he really, is he really a disciple? I mean, come on. They cast lots for him, all this stuff. What does the text have to say? If you look at chapter one of Book of Acts, two-thirds of it is about this choosing of this replacement, and it even uses terms like office and appointed for, and, you know, all this stuff. Is there anything in the, the text itself that points you away from that? But oftentimes we bring in other things, other questions. Part of what uh, a literary approach does to you is starts to tame you. 
you get tamed because you want to ask me too. Come on, I'm in this too. We want to ask so many other questions of the text. We have so many other spiritual interests, and this disciplines us to say, okay, actually, can I find this in Scripture? And if I can't, maybe I'm asking the wrong question. Trying to get behind the text leads to speculation. Motives or uh, speculating motives and emotions that Scripture doesn't provide will lead you away from the text meanings. Okay, so included Matthias there, but sometimes you get the the sense that um, I've heard this as well in in the midst of a Bible study. Oh, I bet Paul was um, was really depressed at this point in prison. <laughs> if you read the text, that's not what he's saying. Or I could imagine, you know, sort of that empathetic reading into the text of something. Um, that is in the, uh, in the realm of, of speculations, the motives. I think so oftentimes we, we try to guess at motives. If the scripture doesn't tell you motives, then you've got to really be careful on speculating what motives are. See this all the time in, in Old Testament historical narratives. We start speculating on why a particular character does something or whether they are who we should emulate. Um, going behind the text will cause us to miss the proper evaluations of a character's actions. Is uh, Job, Job's friend Elihu, it stopped mid-sentence there, um, is, he, is he actually faithful? Um, if we read the whole of Job's narrative, he says a lot of interesting things, maybe even wise things, but he's not God's response. God's response is different and more powerful. Um, sometimes that can be really confusing. So what are we really saying about the author? Bruce Walkie um, says it this way. The narrator always speaks truthfully and authoritatively because he is a prophet, God's inspired spokesman. The implied author's omniscience and omnipresence, apart from modern demands of documentation, are due to this heavily inspired, heavenly inspired, not his pure, he heavenly inspiration, not his purely fictitious inventiveness. Nevertheless, the inspired author probably exercised his authorial right to represent what a character of the story, including God, said in his own terms while being faithful to the historical reality. That was a lot there, but unpack that. What is he saying about, about Scripture? Yeah, and maybe we shouldn't care so much about verbatim. Why does Jesus sound like John in the Gospel of John? Why does he sound like Matthew in the Gospel of Matthew? Or, more scary, he spoke Aramaic. We only have his words in Greek, aside from a couple of you could, That could really drive you into a panic if we cared about this sort of modern understanding of documentation. What we want to say is, yes, Jesus really spoke those, you know, spoke words that were to the effect of, faithfully represented here, the inspired take we have on it the inspired version of it is the kind we have in our Gospels. 
How are you feeling about that? Questions? Yeah, it went, one was click quickly that it was very quickly received. It, it, there, is no, there is no sense in which any of that really seemed ambiguous. Now, we know that Paul wrote other letters, but we don't have any of those. Well, in 1 Corinthians, he's, he, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, we, there's different opinions on that one. Um, but there's, he, he actually says, this is the Lord speaking, and he actually is talking about marriage in 1 Corinthians, and I think he's quoting Jesus there. This, this is the Lord, but now I give you Paul, inspired Paul. I don't think he steps out of the Holy Spirit and not inspired at that time. There are different opinions of that one, but um, so I'll, I'll leave it there. That's how I, as I've done the exegesis on that, um, th- I think he's actually talking about Jesus, the person, giving that, and then at other times he's talking about the Spirit, but um, that But I think that it's really important to say that um, you never have an occasion in Scripture where you see them questioning their own, well, maybe I'm not inspired at this time. I don't think you ever get a sense in which, well, you know, ignore those types of, these comments here. I think you always get the sense in which it was received and accepted, um, and then we just don't have some of the other ones um, that, that weren't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so so we want to we're not going to speculate as to what the author what the author in as if he was always inspired. He's inspired as he's writing. And so the words itself are the inspiration, the process. But Paul 24/7 is not inspired. Peter 24/7 is not inspired. Um, it is it is the words as they write. They are they are um, they're filled with the Holy Spirit as they as they compose those letters. Um, yeah. What is the nature of inspiration? I mean, th- why does this? Some of this gives us a hang up because we we see so much of the human author in this. Um, listen to the words from B.B. Warfield. It's a long quote, but I think it's really um, insightful. And there is the preparation of the men to write these books to be considered, a preparation physical, intellectual, spiritual, which must have attended them throughout their whole lives and indeed must have had its beginning in their remote ancestors and the effect of which was to bring the right men to the right place at the right time with the right endowments, impulses, acquirements, to write just the books which were uh, designed for them. When inspiration, technically so-called, is superintended on the lines of preparation like these, it takes on quite a different aspect from that which bears when it is thought of as an isolated act of the divine spirit operating out of all relation to the historical uh, processes. Think about what he's saying there. Why does it sound like John? Well, maybe God worked in John's life from the very beginning to have that type of accent and that type of 
way to articulate it because that's how he wanted it to be done. There's nothing sacred about the language of Hebrew. It's so funny. Um, Bruce Walkie, who, who um, was one of my Old Testament professors, one of the guy, he writes the book on how to read biblical Hebrew, um, describes the, the language from which Hebrew came as this really gross language among a people that was, um, you know, as, as he has sort of done the work, as a, as, as a people who were pretty um, out there in their sin and idolatry. And yet God even used that. Wasn't n- anything particular about that culture or that, that way of speaking that's sacred, yet God superintends all the whole process so the end result is what we have. Warfield goes on, the human characteristic of the writers must, and in point of fact do, uh, condition and qualify the writings produced by them. The implication of being that, therefore, we cannot from a man a pu- um, get from a man pure word of God, so any word of God which is passed through the mind and the soul of a man must come out discolored by the personality through which it is given, and just to that degree ceases to be the pure word of God. This is you know, him in a little cynical voice of his. But what if his pers- this personality has been itself formed by God into precisely the personality it is for the express purpose of communicating to the, wor- uh, to the word given through it just the coloring which it gives? What if the colors of the stained glass window have been designed by the architect for the express purpose of giving it to the light that which floods the cathedral, precisely the tone and the quality it receives from them. I think it's a beautiful image of how this comes about. We can get so cynical of these are written by men um, that we forget that these were all crafted by a God who was working not just at the particular time of their speech, but throughout their lives. All right, the process to canonization... um, I want to look just quickly at this uh, three different categories here because all that I might say might bring up the question, well, wait a second. What about those who speculate that there was oral tradition that came about that these authors, biblical authors, used? And so it's not really their stories. They're taking it from somebody else. What do you think about that? That's called form criticism, looking at the original oral tradition looking at the text and saying, oh, look, it's clear these things are passed down. I'm going to need a little help on that. Okay. Well, maybe we'll come back to her. What, what, are, what are some other thoughts? What, what would you say about that if, if someone says, well, look, here, he's borrowing from, from an oral tradition? Maybe you should question some of that. Yeah, sure, God can use oral tradition. Luke tells us as much. He says, I'm compiling this stuff having talked to all these people that I've interviewed. It's not a bad thing to say that sources were used, or even a tradition that developed. We have this idea that what do we think typically happens in, tra- in tradition, especially oral tradition. Come on, cynics. Yeah, breaks down over time, right? Telephone game. Somebody started it. What we have now, boy, if I told you that maybe Mark is written in the 60s, 
That's 30 years. Imagine the telephone game after 30 years. I mean, one, let's, this was important stuff here that they're remembering and passing down. This is not just uh, you know, a little rumor that gets spread. But two, the Holy Spirit's working through these men, working through this process, working through every time this gets passed down. So what we have is nothing we can be ashamed of. Um, there were some that, that says we need to demythologize the text, which says, you know what, this is all written in this Jewish expectation and what, what God says uh, through Jesus. We have to peel away the husk of it to get to the kernel of the gospel and the real truth. And so let's not get all these stories about Judaism and all that other stuff. That's just kind of the packaging. We can do away with that. How would you respond to that? Yeah, Rico. Um, I, I took a class in Jewish pedagogy, mm. and comparable to Jewish teaching when I was at Israel. And it's important to look at how the context means what the story initially designed to be. So I think it's important to look at some of that. I mean, because if you, if you were never a gardener, you would not understand it so much. Right. I mean, but at the end of the day, we've got to be a scientist. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, the chronicle of all that stuff. Yeah. 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 So we should. Yeah, we shouldn't ignore any of that stuff. Um, it's all part of the process, and in fact, um, that you can't have the kernel. You can't just. You will destroy the kernel if you try to remove the husk. If you try to take what Jesus is saying out from its context, you're actually going to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He, he's designed this context. Source criticism actually looks at the sources that the author uses to compose the text. And again, this drives people crazy because they look at uh, what is written in Genesis and you say, wow, that kind of already looks like um, some other, other sources. Um, there's... Uh, some will look like say this is really borrowed from a Mesopotamian myth, Enuma Elish, or the Noah's flood looks like an ab- adaptation from the Babylonian story of Gil- Epic of Gilgamesh. Should this bother you? Should it bother you that it looks like the biblical authors employed some of the language here? If they were just stealing the stuff and repeating it in their own version, yeah, that probably should bother you. (laughs) But they're not just doing that. They're employing it for oftentimes polemical purposes. There's a great book um, that I put in the notes that I'm not sure, I can't remember if I put it on here. Um, I think I did. Um, That talks about it's the approach that it's used. Redaction criticism asks why and how the editor put these sources together the way that it did in the final form. The, fi- the editor is the final inspired version of this. That doesn't mean that um, God didn't use the people in the early stages of this, um, but we need to pay attention to why it is in the final form. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the biblical author stripped the ancient pagan literatures of their mythological elements 
and infused them with uh, sublimities of their God and refuted the pagan myths by identifying the Holy Lord as the true creator and ruler of the cosmos. That's really important. John Currid has this great book, Against the God, Gods, and he shows many passages in the Old Testament. It's a very user-friendly book, by the way. Um, many passages in the Old Testament where it looks like they're borrowing from ancient other pagan nations, but the authors are borrowing in such a way as to, uh, for polemical purposes, oftentimes to mock um, the original culture, um, to say it in a very sarcastic way, in a, in a triumphant way, that our God is victorious over them, and to actually show the foolishness of the other, uh, the originals. All right. Um, in the end, it is the canonical text that is authoritative, not the process, nor the self-understanding of the interpreter. It's the text, and that's what we're going to keep coming back to. Um, the human author's point may expand or gain detail in light of further revelation. Sometimes you say, well, boy, could Isaiah have known Jesus through everything that Isaiah is saying? Well, I, I like how Voss talks about it. Um, he has this idea that it's organic, that there's a truth to it, but he may not have seen the whole picture. That doesn't mean it's not true, but the way he knows it in the particular times he does, it's, a, it's, it's still in seed form. Um, all right, so intentional communication, uh, final point, I think, um, this idea that God really wants you to know his word. Guys, God wants you to know his word. We put so much energy into finding a word underneath a word or some hidden code in his word. He wants you to know his word. So listen, ask the question, what does the author mean here? And you'll be getting what God means there. See it in its context in, as you see the Bible as, as a whole and you'll get to know. God wants you to know his word. He's not trying to play games here. He's not trying to, to obfuscate it or hide it behind some tradition. Um, you can check these for the, the handout as some functions of it. Um, but essentially, we're getting down to the idea of genre. He communicates in many different ways um, his word. And so we have it in poetry. We have it in narrative. Through the next few weeks, we are going to go through each of these categories and see how his word unfolds. But it's essential to, um, to remember that. Um, there's the types of genre. Back to the opening question as a close. Why do multiple accounts of the same event often seem so different? Well, Voss says it really well. If Paul has one point of view and Peter another, then each can be at best only approximately correct, right? No, right? <laughs> this would actually follow if the truth did not carry itself in a multiformity of aspects, but infallibly, infallibility is not inseparable from dull uniformity. You can have many aspects, especially if you have things that appear to be different aspects of a story, like Chronicles and Samuel, and yet it doesn't deny truth that's behind all of them. All right, closing questions, anybody? I know the kids are here. Ran through a lot of that. Let me close this in prayer. Father, thank you for um, this study, and, and I do pray that we'll continue to be sensitive to the authors you used and the way that they wrote it, because ultimately you are the author. Um, bless our reading of your word and um, bless our meal now as we fellowship together in Christ's name. Amen.